It's April 29th, 2010, and breaking on Larry King is news that the Deepwater Horizon oil slick is 120 miles wide. Let's get more from CNN weather anchor Chad Meyer. Chad? Larry, it really is a mess today because the winds shifted direction. They're now out of the southeast blowing this oil, this sludge, into the bayous of southeastern Louisiana, well south of New Orleans, but into that little point that is the delta of New Orleans. Here's the map. Here's the brown area where the oil is. Events of this scale dominate headlines for weeks, but the oil slick is not the only threat to coastal Louisiana's wetlands, nor are big oil spills the only ones that happen. This week's theme is the dark side of the oil and gas boom. I'm George Varney, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE with you on your beat for over 30 years. On this episode, we'll be looking at the environmental and economic impact of oil and gas drilling. Environmental reporter Bob Marshall works for The Lens in New Orleans. He'll take us through his latest project he did in partnership with ProPublica called Losing Ground. While Marshall was reporting and writing in Louisiana, the ProPublica staff created an interactive website combining satellite images with historical photos and more to create a visual timeline of wetland devastation in Louisiana. The final product is powerful and conveys the message better than actually taking people out on the water, Marshall says. You can take people out there today, and I do this all the time, and you take them to a large bay and you say, this used to be all wetlands, marsh, and swamp. And they can, yeah, wow. But they, they, it's hard to visualize. After that, Blake Morrison will share the details of a Reuters investigation that exposed an energy company CEO's billion-dollar secret that led to his resignation and an SEC investigation. And to wrap things up, KDNK radio reporter Ed Williams will take us behind his story about oil and other chemical spills that occurred on private properties in Colorado. Williams found that, despite legal requirements, the companies sometimes failed to report the spills to landowners. And it turned out he had no idea that these chemicals were on his property. Here's a quick edit of what he said. Nobody ever told me none of this. The civil said, let me know what's going on. I mean, a spillage of poison and everything. So the question then was, was this an outlier or were there other landowners out there who were unaware of chemical spills that have taken place on their property? Shrinking shorelines, cash and chemical spills coming up on the IRE radio podcast. Bob Marshall, an environmental reporter for The Lens, teamed up with ProPublica to work on a story he's watched unfold over several decades. The Louisiana wetlands, an area he's called home for more than 40 years, are disappearing. I spoke to Marshall recently, and he took me through the reporting process for the project titled Losing Ground. Before going into the details of the story, Marshall explained to me that this loss of land is a problem over 80 years in the making. The changing of the landscape started in the 1930s when the Army Corps of Engineers began constructing levees after the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927. Those levees helped prevent city flooding, but didn't allow the floodwaters to bring in sediment to replenish the land. What really hurt the area, though, was the feverish rush of oil and gas companies seeking to drill in the wetlands, which would eventually turn marshlands into open water. Entire geographic landforms disappeared. Maps were rewritten. Centuries-old communities like De La Croix Island were destroyed as habitable land sunk below the water's surface. Here's Marshall detailing the damage to De La Croix and other communities. People in De La Croix uh, the community had as many as 700 to almost 1,000 people living down there. There were no hard surface roads to some of these areas for a long time. There were shell roads uh, made from clam shells. And these people had everything they needed there. And so there wasn't a whole lot of migration outward. But eventually, because of when these oil and gas company canals came in beginning in the 30s, 
that began to uh, really uh, be the demise of, the, of these delta lands. And so um, saltwater intrusion, uh, opening of, um, of some of the, the marshes and swamps, the cutting of the swamps. So these folks down in Delacroix, including the man I, I kind of profile in, in that story, Lloyd Wimpy Serenier, um, uh, they began noticing that the marsh was falling apart, that lakes and ponds were becoming lagoons, lagoons were becoming lakes, um, their, their trap lines were becoming wide, and, um, and they began noticing that when storms passed, uh, they were getting higher and higher storm surges into their town. And so really as, as, as these wetlands fell apart, so did their culture. And um, at the same time, the city was expanding. There were hard surface roads, and people could come in and go out much more easily. But, you know, when, when Hurricane Betsy hit in 65, uh, it really laid waste to this area. About 80% of the population moved back. Then after Katrina, very few, because the, the wetlands at once were thick and went for 10, 20, 30, 40, actually about 40 miles, 50 miles to the nearest large bay, had been reduced, been cut in half, or even suffered even greater loss. And so storm surge was much more of a factor. And even small storms would be flooding. And everything was sinking because the delta was uh, cut off from the river and its tributaries by levees. And so this whole ecosystem was falling apart, and, and so did the culture that depended on it. So you had these stories, and it was presented in a really uh, unique and interesting way on ProPublica's website. Can you talk to me um, about how the final product, uh, Losing Ground, was presented and if knowing how it was going to be shown in the end affected how you reported it at all? Well, it did. You know, well, um, as I said, you know, I've been writing about this for some time. So, I mean, I did a lot of original reporting for this. The really new thing was the graphics. You know, us writers hate to hear it, Pictures worth a thousand words, but you can take people out there today, and I do this all the time. And you take them to a large bay, and you say, "This used to be all wetlands, marsh, and swamp," and they can, yeah, wow. But they, they it's hard to visualize. So, but we knew, and I knew that um, if these graphics worked the way Publica was proposing them, that it would really be. Um, slap in the face and wake people up, especially people who don't know anything about this. This was a national story, so the way I was putting the story together was quite a bit different than I might have done uh, for a local story because it's been reported so often here. So what I wanted to do early in the story was let people who weren't from here know that in the written copy that this isn't just about Louisiana, like it's not about New Orleans. And they have to understand that this this is a national impact because of the economic infrastructure that is going to be wiped away or forced to move. Uh, they also have to understand that, you know, New Orleans is known as a party town, but it's also an economic linchpin uh, 
for the nation. Um, and no one really is aware of that. And New Orleans certainly doesn't do go out to try to sell that to tourists. No one's going to come here to learn about oil and gas infrastructure or 50% of the nation's grain exports come through here. <laughs> They're going to come here to have a good time, and and they do. So, um, so that was what we were aiming for in the main story, which we called the explainer, and that's what I was doing. But then we wanted to um, we wanted to connect uh, a personal story as much as we could in the space we had to work with to each of the eight areas uh, that we were going to focus in on. Marshall reported from the ground while ProPublica went through decades of historical pictures and maps and combined that information with satellite and U.S. geological survey data to create an interactive app detailing the great change that has come to the region. To get a better idea of the process behind the satellite mapping, check out the links in our show notes, including a Tau Center for Digital Journalism interview with Scott Klein and Al Shaw of ProPublica. In this act, we'll be talking about spills, but not just oil. First, a story about an energy company's CEO leaking cash. In 2012, Reuters investigated the CEO of the nation's second largest natural gas producer, Chesapeake Oil Corporation. Reuters started looking into the energy company further, following investigation into shell companies they did a year earlier. Reuters found that Chesapeake was operating shell companies in Michigan to buy land at cheaper prices. When the land leasing boom died down, one of Chesapeake's shell companies canceled deals with more than 800 private landowners. That reporting led to the state attorney general filing criminal charges against the company. Reuters also found that some of the shell companies were being operated independently by Chesapeake CEO Aubrey McClendon. Blake Morrison was one of the editors of the story on McClendon. He said that by going through land records and lawsuits, reporters found that the CEO was borrowing against his own interest in company wells. He had an unusual perk at Chesapeake where he was granted the opportunity to buy into wells that Chesapeake was going to drill. And he was borrowing against what he was going to buy into, and he had run up almost, uh, I think, more than a billion dollars in loans. Morrison said paying attention to the seemingly arcane details of land records is worthwhile. The documents can contain ownership information, which is how McClendon was found out. Morrison also suggested journalists look at lawsuits against the company. Legal documents can be a good place to find sources for additional reporting, even if the suit itself isn't directly related to your current story. The Reuters team also got a lot of good information by going through SEC filings. Morrison recommends comparing what you have discovered about the company with the information it discloses about itself. Reuters found that Chesapeake wasn't being tight-lipped about their intentions to buy up vast tracts of land. Chesapeake was unabashed in talking about its efforts to buy as much land as possible. In fact, it characterized it as a, quote, land grab. On top of that, Reuters obtained emails revealing that Chesapeake may have been colluding with rival companies to keep land prices low. The CEO ended up resigning amid SEC and other investigations. From Exxon Valdez to Deepwater Horizon, big spills make big news. But what about all the little spills that happen on private property? 
In a behind-the-story for IRE, KDNK reporter Ed Williams discussed his story on Colorado landowners unaware of contaminants on their property. This is Ed Williams. I'm a reporter at KDNK Community Radio in Carbondale, Colorado. A big part of my work here focuses on covering the natural gas industry in our region. We're based in Garfield County, which is one of the most heavily drilled areas of our heavily drilled state. We came across this particular story after noticing an unusual spill report in the online database of the state's oil and gas oversight department called the COGCC. The gas company had written the words unknown or to be determined into almost half the fields on the form, which was unusual. But it did say soil testing had uncovered unsafe levels of hazardous chemicals on the site things that you wouldn't particularly want on your property, like arsenic and benzene. Uh, They also listed the name of the landowner, who we looked up on a people search database to find out more about the incident. And it turned out he had no idea that these chemicals were on his property. Here's a quick edit of what he said. Nobody ever told me none of this. They're supposed to let me know what's going on. I mean, a spillage of poison and everything. So the question then was, was this an outlier or were there other landowners out there who were unaware of chemical spills that have taken place on their property? That turned out to be a tough question to answer. I used the state's online spill report database to compile a spreadsheet of the nearly 100 spill reports filed in our county over the period of one year, listing each report by company, volume of chemicals spilled, and the name of the landowner of the property where the spill took place. A little sorting and grouping in Excel showed that almost across the board, the gas companies were not identifying the property owner where the spill took place. They were just checking a box saying that they talked to the landowner about the contamination. The landowner we contacted at the outset of the story was one of the only instances in which a company actually wrote who the landowner was in their report. And that meant that the energy companies were keeping the identities of the owners of contaminated land in our area secret because the state doesn't keep records of who owns gas leases. And so regulators have no way of verifying that companies are reliably notifying landowners of spills as they're required to do by law. So we set out to try and track down some of these unidentified landowners listed on spill reports. Since the contact information was held by private companies, an open records request wouldn't be much use. But we knew that the names of the gas well pads and other facilities on private property are often last names coupled with a series of numbers and letters, like, say, a gas well filed under the name Richardson 482B. We had a hunch those last names belonged to the property owner, and searching our spreadsheet for spill reports that took place on such facilities, we were able to couple last names with property locations, which gave us enough information to track down a handful of landowners companies had kept secret on their reports. And sure enough, among those, we found several others who said they weren't informed of chemical spills on their property, even though companies had told the state that they had informed the landowners. Excel was the secret ingredient for reporting this story. It not only allowed us to see the holes in the record keeping that we couldn't have spotted looking at the individual reports online, but it also gave us fodder for follow-up stories because we could put a number on the amount of pollution spilled by the gas industry in our area, identify the biggest offenders, and show how often the state issued fines for gas spills. Plus, with a little finessing, we were able to spin a cool interactive map out of the data that we had compiled into Excel. If you had success with the story and want to share your techniques with fellow IRE members, please drop us a line at web at ire.org. Behind the stories can be text, audio, or video. 
And if you're interested in investigating smaller, possibly unreported oil spills in your state, we have a database for you. Former NICAR boot camp attendee and Energy Wire reporter Mike Sorahan created a database of oil spills that is linked in the show notes for this podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find past episodes on both our SoundCloud page and on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. Head over to our website to go behind the story with Chicago Magazine and learn how two journalists help expose the truth about the city's shocking crime rates. Guides to covering crime, using statistics, and analyzing data are now available as ebooks at the IRE store. Most digital titles are offered at a discounted price. Visit store.ire.org for more. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, our inbox is always open. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast, and she can be reached at web at ire.org, or you can reach me at George V, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-V, at ire.org. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm George Varney.